welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, today we're talking about neuroscience, AI, and the detection of dementia and other brain health conditions early. My guest is Hamza Salim, and he's the co-founder of MindStep. Now, MindStep, it's like an app. Uh, well, it is an app. It's not like an app. It is an app uh, where patients can report their symptoms and machine learning is going to find correlations in all that data and essentially screen for some conditions and pick up some conditions early. Um it's even been able to start to quantify brain fog. So you know that kind of feeling where everything's a bit foggy, you can't remember things, your concentration's low, you're inhibited, uh, your cognition is inhibited. Uh, you sort of colloquially refer to it as brain fog and what their machine learning's been able to do is to pick that up and identify it almost as like a new condition and they're in the process of submitting that to neurology conferences and eventually they'll go to NICE and things like that. Uh, Hamza talks about it on the episode, so that's incredibly interesting. Um, but yeah, Hamza's a doctor. Uh, he was signing investor term sheets with Octopus Ventures at the same time as doing finals, so he knows a little bit about multitasking. Um, but he's a man that also appreciates context. He says he's a data and AI company, and he makes very data and AI-based decisions, or at least data-based decisions uh, in his company. He's a man that likes context. Uh, he likes to get as much information as possible from people and from feedback in order to make the right decisions for himself and his company. I uh, really enjoyed this one. I uh, hope you guys do too. Hamza, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, mate? Good, good. Man, good to have you on. Yeah, followed my step for a little while and seeing what you guys are up to. Obviously, a very, very noble cause, very cool company, some great investors, and you guys are onto some really good things. So looking forward to looking forward to getting into this, man, and hearing about it. Um, you're a young founder as well, and so I'm keen to get uh, keen to get your story and hear all about you. But before we do, yeah, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, mate? Where are you based? Yeah, I'm uh, in Camden, um, near UCL, which is where I graduated from, actually. Oh, nice. Where are the MindStep offices? Have you got offices in this modern world? Do you work hybrid? Do you work? Uh, do you work at home? Yeah, I mean, we we did the hybrid thing for a year or so. It was good. It has like its positives. I mm. can see the benefit of like working side by side. But then every we would do it like two days a week or, or a couple of days, and everyone when they came to the office was just so excited to see each other. Yeah, like, I'd be buzzing to see everyone. So you just chat which is which is lovely but it wasn't actually everyone would come from the day being like oh i'm not really that productive and it feels like we're just renting a space to like buzz with each other which is good but I, the london rents are horrendous <laughs> uh so i was like why don't we just, why don't we just try remote and i'll just use that money that we spend on office rent to like take everyone out to the pub or the park yep. or we can go play football instead like why we just like stood around a you know a, a a pool table in a in a sweaty office when we can just probably do this more fun more cheaply elsewhere so yeah we're, we're trying remote now actually and we have to see how that goes but i'm honestly still trying to figure out what the the best configuration is yeah so same and because we're t we we talk about it like should we should we move to the office thing we are remote it works really well but people say like they are enjoying remote it feels like the team's super close it feels like we've got that camaraderie anyway and when we do meet up yeah we just tend to do more fun stuff and it seems to work but oh it's a minefield i actually spoke to, i spoke to um i don't know if you know patients know best uh but i spoke to mohammed the founder of that company yeah um and they've been they've been remote i think he said since like 2008 or something he's been doing it for so long and he just sees so much value in it and talk to me about how and why and all that stuff if anybody listening wants to go back and listen to that one it's one of the ones previous to this but but yeah no super cool company man and they've been wrote for a long time but anyway we digress um mate be good to good to hear your story man i know that um as i say you're a young founder and uh you've also done a few bits before now so yeah tell me all about it man how do you uh tell me tell me all about the run-up to mindstep yeah sure so i suppose a bit about myself so i grew up in germany and then I came to London for uni. I um, studied medicine and I also did like at UCL and I also did like a BSc in neuroscience and at Imperial. And it was actually whilst I was at Imperial that I sort of 
I was really always fascinated by the brain and I thought it was like, although, although neurology is really hard and I did terrible in my OSCEs, for the, you, you all know what OSCEs are, but maybe for the viewers uh, or the listeners, uh, OSCEs are like the, the type of exam we have to go through um, and they're really tricky. But I always, I always felt, felt that like your brain, you know, it was like the ultimate frontier. It's like your identity. It's how it works. It's so much more compli- complicated than like anything we understand. And I was always fascinated by that, especially the clinical side. And I was in a lecture actually, and we were learning OSCEs. And I was like, oh God, my least favorite thing. And uh, the, we were doing um, one particular thing. We were doing like uh, the cranial nerve test. I don't know if you remember this, James, back to your med school days mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you're like waving. And for those that might not have a medical background, it's basically where you assess like the nerves in your face and you do, uh, you might have had this test done to you in A&E if you, um, you know, got hit in the head or something or experiencing some neurological symptoms, they'll basically like test the nerves. And one test is like um, called the H test. I remember this very distinctively. And it was like, you know, you wave your finger in front of a patient and be like, oh, can you, can you follow my finger with your eyes? And, you know, I was having one of those like really archaic neuro profs at Imperial, you know, with a little bow tie. Um, and he was just telling me, he's like, oh, all you junior doctors and med students, you always do this wrong. You have to be looking at like the subtle flicker of the, your pu- of the pupil and, you know, correct distance. And I was like, bloody hell, this is really hard. Um, I love neuro, but it just seems so, so difficult, so difficult. And like a good medical student, I got distracted and started, this was a few years ago, like three, three, four years ago. And I started playing around on my phone on Snapchat. I rather embarrassingly was using the dog filter to communicate to my mates as a, as a Gen Z would, you know, (laughs) and, um, I, and, uh, I I swear this has relevance. So I was, I was doing that and I, whilst Snapchat placed this like dog filter on my face, it, you know, attracts your eye movement and your facial expressions to like map the ears perfectly and like the, the silly tongue and stuff. And I was like, hmm, why is Snapchat able to perfectly track my eye movement and my facial expression? And like, regardless of what distance I'm at to the phone, but a room full of 300 medics can't seem to get this H test right. And I was like, you, you know, it's fair played Snapchat, you know, I'm a big fan of the filters, but it felt like the application of this technology would perhaps be more beneficial to society if it was implemented to detect, you know, early neurodegenerative disease or all the things that we do with like a cranial nerve examination. And then that got me like thinking neurology and psychiatry are kind of unique in their fields in the sense that it's a lot of like communication to extract the information from a from the patient and then it's a lot of like maybe gross motor function and then with a lot of that you can often make a diagnosis as opposed to like maybe cardiology where you need like your stethoscope or gastro you need like you know endoscopy or complex hardware um to really get a diagnosis i was like "Mm, you know this field could be pretty much translated onto a phone very bold statement to make from a such a young medical student but i honestly didn't know any better at the time Mm. Um, and I think that is kind of like a, a good trait to have in a founder. Like sometimes when you're so deep in the field, you just think everything is impossible. But if you're kind of like fresh at it, I just didn't know. I was like, yeah, why not? Like cranial nerve, this seems like all of neurology. Obviously it's not. But I was like, we can we can just try, we start with that. Why not? I took, you know, I got a couple of medics together that were more experienced than me. I got some brave registrars and... I was like, let's just see if we can translate it onto a phone. And it, what started as like one cranial nerve test, I was like, okay, no one really actually has cranial nerve palsies. Maybe we can do something more relevant. And I was like, hmm, okay. And I, at this point, I, you know, I was like, it was COVID kind of kicking off and, you know, UCL were like having us volunteer in hospitals. And I was like seeing what the problems of the NHS and patients were. And I was like, wow, dementia is, you know, really something that's very common often patients are presenting really late to A&E and it feels like that could be something where there would be a benefit to diagnosing earlier um and the test around dementia like the MMSE mocha seemed really translatable so we started building it onto the product we started trying it out with patients and then when we translated 
the tests onto a device. I didn't appreciate that. It unlocked quite a few things. So first, for example, patients from anywhere could start using it. You know, they didn't need to sit in a clinic or A&E. And obviously during COVID, that was super impactful um, as we couldn't get near patients at the time. And it's still, you know, like in a post-COVID era, that's one of the things that I think patients really like, like being able to be remote consultation have a remote consultation like not having to always go to the gp to receive care and then we also were digitalizing the whole process in a way that had never been done before so it was like tracking you know your eye movement down to the millimeter right it wasn't just a consultant being like yeah i know in, in a binary sense it was like re- taking this richness and huge amount of data which we were then running through machine learning algorithms to try you know, train it like a consultant to be really like pick up the early signs and stuff. And with the sheer volume of patients that started, um, you know, going through the app and the amount of data going through this algorithm or the AI, essentially, it started to become very, very good, like phenomenal at detecting the early warning signs of not only dementia, but it started to be able to exclude other conditions. It started to, you know, point us in the direction of new conditions that we weren't really fully appreciating. So we've actually just done this massive data analysis project, like 50,000 brains on um, brain fog. It's a condition that we often hear in GP land, but we don't you know, really appreciate what it is. So we, because we had loads of people reporting brain fog, we were able to like map that to other symptoms and be like, okay, this is actually what brain fog is. And we've just submitted it to like the European National Conference for Neurology and it, it received like a huge you know, like welcome in that field, which is which is hard in neurology because it's sometimes very resistant to change. That is essentially the 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 uh, story of like how mindset founded, and it's gone through like ups and downs and different things. And the team has grown to like twenty people now, and funding rounds, etc. But yeah, that's where <laughs> we're at. That's awesome, man. There's there's quite a lot I want to talk to you about here, and I'm going to spare the listeners uh, from talking about Oskis too much, but like. Mate, how stressful were Oskis? Oh my goodness. They were just horrible. Like some of my, we talked off air just now about like, you know, things that stress you out now versus when you were a medical student doctor. Like Oskis, I think were peak stress for me. Like the fact that I had to go and do like basically 12 exams in like a very short space of time um, and just be like critiqued on my behavior and stuff like as I was doing them, like, oh my goodness, it was so stressful. But I'm going to spare the listeners from hearing about that. It's just, just not even realistic, is it? It's just <laughs> it's not, not even how you should just... actually interact with the patient. Oh, you, I, don't, in fact, I don't understand. Do you know what? I am going to bore people now because I can remember, right, finally Eroski, the abdo exam. Abdo exam station. So you've got to go over, you've got to examine this guy's abdomen. So you've got to remember all the steps. And it's a very sort of, if you've done any educational theory, it's very sort of behaviorism, this kind of like the way you've got to learn Oskis. It's very like... You've just got to memorize a list of actions. And that was something I never really liked doing. I like to learn with like critical realism, I guess, of like the knowing why I'm doing it and to understand it. And to that's the way I like to learn things. Whereas in an OSCE, you've just got to learn a load of steps in a row of, of how to do it. But anyway, did this, did this abdo exam. Everything appeared incredibly normal apart from like a couple of scars um, that, I couldn't mm-hmm. really piece together. And I remember like feeling around this guy's liver being like, is this enlarged? Like, would this guy be sat here in an Oski with a liver that enlarged, like down like near his groin? And I was like, this is, this is, this can't be right. I was like, have they just thrown in like a normal exam? And looking at this guy, I was like, is this a normal mm-hmm. exam? But he's got these scars. Like, that. Anyway, I, pre- I ended up presenting it as like, do you know what? I think this is normal. Like, it's all anyway it's cut long story short the examiner was like i can see you feeling around yeah. the liver like you, cl- you you thought that was enlarged didn't you and i was like yeah but i didn't want to say it like because I, I, I couldn't really like he was like this guy's got hepatorenal syndrome and he's got like a third kidney and he's got this oh, and that and no. the other and i was just i was just like <laughs> I, okay like is that, is that is that something that i'm gonna have to diagnose <laughs> with just my hands like in the rest of my medical career <laughs> like how realistic is this but anyway I, I suppose they're assessing quite a lot there to give them their due but my goodness did i get that wrong <laughs> like oh. oh man i've had i've had like equally this wasn't my my story but i've done similarly embarrassing things where you go in and maybe it's like a simple one like take blood pressure 
and they you know you just go in you're so stressed out you just like grab the examiner's arm start doing it on them <laughs> and you're just like looking at you being like i'm, I'm not the patient <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that's fantastic that's that's incredible yeah that's incredible yeah i honestly think there'll be an amazing I just, my next startup idea is to film the oskies i just think they would be so funny like it would, like it would be like the weirdest reality tv show uh you can call it oski island 12 yep. candidates go round. i think it's great because you could eliminate you could eliminate people you could i mean there's all there's there's so much drama in the run-up of like i mean we we used to we i don't know how much of this is going to make it into the, the edit of this podcast but like my good i can remember in yeah. our house of medics we like set up like an oski station where like one of the stations was just the timekeeper and the bell and you'd hit the bell and then you'd run to each other's rooms and just pretend you had some other uh, like pathological like thing like oh my god just so stressful anyway oskies oskies are stressful we've bored everyone if there's anyone still listening i want to move us now on to a bit of entrepreneurship stuff uh you talked about the naivety of fresh eyes and that beginner mindset and that is what basically gave you or set you on the path of essentially this mammoth task that you probably didn't know how mammoth it was or at least you saw like the start of the red thread of like, oh, this could be a nice little red thread to pull, but turns out it's absolutely enormous with all these like complicating factors and all the rest yeah. of it. And so many founders I hear say the same thing, which is like, if I'd known how complicated it was at the start, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, and that seems to be like a, a common thing. And I, you know, I'd say the same almost about what I'm doing now or things I've done in the past. You're starting an accelerator and potentially raising a fund. Like you don't, you don't know how difficult that'll be when you yeah. start it. Uh, all these things that you know I've done as well. But I want to come back to the thing, right? The naivety of fresh eyes and that beginner mindset. I think that is absolutely crucial. Can you just expand on that for me about like how fresh were those eyes? How little did you know before you started this? And how, how, how did the task appear in front of you when you did start pulling on that thread? I mean, it was about as fresh as like someone just starting like their career in medicine. Like you really, what, you've just got the Krebs cycle under your, under your belt, maybe. <laughs> like you, you just, you think medicine is just a bunch of pathways, maybe. And you have a little bit of patient exposure, but you have a lot of passion. You can like, yeah. See a bit. I, at that point, I mean, where the way UCL and Imperial do their like curriculums, it's very like science heavy to start with. And then the clinical stuff is like later on, it's kind of like gatekeeped a bit. Mm. And I was like, I'm really, this, this stuff seems cool. What this Krebs cycle stuff get, get away from me. Mm. Um, so I was like really hungry to start diving into it, but obviously didn't know. And I think you need both that like curiosity. And the naivety, I think if you're just naive, like that's probably not a very good mm. <laughs> recipe, but you have to be like willing to keep pulling at that string. And then I also think what's really important is the ability to like listen to other people who might know more than you in the field. And even if they're like, oh, you know, James, this is really tough. Like this is a tough like field. Don't, don't, you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Maybe if that's that, but just read through the lines, be like, okay, but why is it tough? Like what, what, what's happened to you on your journey that's made it so difficult to you? And how can I like mitigate that for myself or my mission? And I was really lucky to have like people that maybe weren't too scarred up from, you know, the, the going through the NHS or like doing like a really hard field, like neurology. They were like, yeah, it is tough. But like, maybe, if maybe if you go that way, it might be easier for you. And I think you have to have like that honest conversation with being able to learn quickly and um, pivot. And if you do something wrong, like that's okay. You're, you're still early days in your, in your, even if you're like now, now we're like, we're just closed like three funding rounds. I still feel like we're early days and making mistakes is fine. You have to be able to like pivot and maneuver. I want to talk about that a bit more because one of the, one of the things I heard about feedback, one of the sort of, good things that I heard about feedback is yeah, listen to feedback and get feedback, but don't listen to all of it. I think what you've just said there is actually even more wisdom than that. And I really like how practical you've just explained that when people give you feedback, particularly, Oh, it's, Oh, that's so hard. I wouldn't bother. That's quite common, you know, particularly from people that have been in a field a long time that are genuinely qualified to tell you something like that you may be in danger of listening to it. You may be in danger of not listening to it. Both are e probably equally dangerous for different reasons. But I think it's really nice what you said there. Like, 
ask those people, why is it tough, do you think? what? And you said something there. What has happened to you in your journey that led to you thinking that? That, that is a fabulous question because that gives you context. And with context, you can apply far more data to your current situation to figure out, okay, is this feedback valid for me in my situation? So I really like that. I really like the idea of asking. And that, I also think that's a really respectful question. I think that's a, that's a question that I think it it gives the person respect for their opinion is valid too but my opinion might also be valid based on my situation. And so you're really sort of allowing for both things to be true there. Not your feedback is bad, my taking of it is right or wrong. You're saying that we could both be right here, so can you give me more context? So I, I really like that about feedback. Um, when you were talking about the idea with people and those experts, was it was it broadly people saying it's a good idea broadly, people saying it's a bad idea, were people saying literally do not bother doing this? What, what was it actually like when you were casing like the idea at that stage? Oh, it was, I mean, early, I would say it was like 95% get back to your Anki deck. Wow. Uh, sort of vibes. And for that's medical translate for get out of my lab mm. or go back onto the wards. And this it's, yeah, it was, it was, it was brutal, but I did have it wrong at that time. Like it would have been a bit, it would have been dumb to build an app that assesses your cranial nerves. Like who, yes. who, who needs that. Right. And that was like the message that I needed to tease out amongst all the, like the laugh being laughed out of the room and like, being told like, why are you doing this? And like, you know, all the other things they were actually trying to say, this is not cost effective. This is a, in their medic in like, especially like when you hear it from medics, they don't know the, like the lingo of this will not have product market fit. That is what they were like trying to tell me in NHS medical language slash go, go revise. Mm. Um, don't, don't try. They were just like, Oh, you don't have product market fit, but it just took me ages to figure out. And I would also say, like, just in terms of to coming out to the point about feedback, um, what was helpful is diversifying your opinion set. And I think this is something I've, like, tried to really keep uh, true now. Like, when we have, like, a big board, I always try to, like, not create, like, the echo chamber, although as tempting as it is because you want to, like, have people that are like-minded to you. It's, it's often, though, more uncomfortable to have people that actually are going to, like, be a bit frictionful and like really call you out for your stuff. And like, I've, yeah, I've got really like been really privileged to have like a, a diversified at that time. Even I was like seeking advice from like, you know, like the quit genius boys uh, mm. were a few years above me. So, and I like played football with them. So I was like talking to founders that were in the space. I was talking to neuro registrars. I was talking to like someone whose grandma had dementia. Like those were all like really important data points that I needed to hear in order to really tease out like why or how I could go about this. The other thing that I want to say there about the feedback side of things is that particularly when you're getting clinical feedback, I see this a lot with founders and I speak mm -hmm. to, I speak to a lot of people that have sort of been quite bruised by that very definitive binary feedback that they will get from clinicians. Um, you see people like Janaid, he's probably listening. Hi Janaid, like on LinkedIn, you know, being very, front-footed and saying like, look, this isn't going to work. This is terrible because. But clinicians do live in the binary. Clinicians do live in the yes, no, abstain. That's how we're taught. That's how we're um, told to communicate things. You either give the drug at this dose or you don't. It's this or it's not, or you just say you don't know. So if clinicians have an opinion, it's either yes or no quite often because that's how we're trained. And clinicians are also trained to find problems in things, they find problems in their own lives. Mm. That's why they're <laughs> difficult to be happy sometimes. But clinicians are trained to find problems in things as well. And so that's where clinicians will often find their internal reward mechanism is like, they'll think they're doing a, a real service to you by that analysis and finding out what's wrong rather than just placating you by saying, you know, oh, it might work because it's actually, no, this won't work because of this thing. And actually that's a gift. It mm. can just be delivered in a way that can be quite bruising, <laughs> let's mm. 
let's just say. So I do, I do yeah. see that a lot, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. I think they're just so different worlds. Like yeah. startup, being a founder and like being your traditional NHS doctor. They're almost like, yeah, they're like you say, like one is like very pathway orientated, regimented. The more you adhere to the rules, the better, like your your life and your career and your success will be. And then completely inversed in startup land. So I do think there's sometimes that disconnect, which is tough to like to bridge, but there are like some really good dons and donesses in the game that um, are like being able to now bridge that gap. Like um, one of my like earliest, my, my earliest mentor and like still to this day, like probably he's like taught me the most I know. He's called like Jean, Jean M. He's oh, like yeah. the Touch he's founder of Touch Surgery. And he picked, he literally like, so he mindset got on the news a bit when it was like kind of um, picking up a bit of traction. I think it was like evening standard, like world Alzheimer's day. Like look at these, you know, medical students and frontline doctors that are like building something for Alzheimer's. And Jean saw that. And he had, was like quite far advanced in his touch surgery career and looking to get into the VC space. And I was really, really lucky to find him because he both understood like the medical space, like he had trained as a surgeon for a bit, but he was like gone through all the, all the pain of being in startup could like speak the language. He was like, you know what, when we say cost effective analysis, that is product market fit. And when we say, you know, you need like low cogs for your whatever, for whatever you're trying to do in your business model, that just translates to like, not having a high patient burden or having high hardware costs. It was, he was like really, really useful. And I think the more, hopefully in the future, when we have more like of more genres, we will have like a bringing together of these two worlds. Agreed. That two worlds thing. I, I feel that so much, you know, that these sort of general ethoses of startup world versus um, healthcare world, like, in our company, we have what's called a, like a yes if culture. When someone contributes an idea, you shouldn't just shut it down with that's a terrible idea because you might say yes if, and then you might label a ridiculous if, but or if you're asked to do something, if you if you need something done by someone who's full of capacity, it'd be yes if this is dropped or whatever, like the yes if culture. But in healthcare, you can't have someone saying like, oh, maybe we should give this cancer drug for this headache you can't say yes if to that like it's it's a completely different it's a completely different thing like you just you just can't move fast and break things you can't move fast and break things delicate. so it can be quite alienating particularly where that tech startup world starts to encroach on healthcare for its clinical people or acumen or space or whatever you're absolutely right that, that can be really difficult and people like jean people that have walked this walk for a long time and you talk about language there language is so important that it's it can be so alienating mm. for technology people to walk straight into a clinical area and start talking tech or talking business or talking in a language that isn't theirs and it's so alien. It just it, adoption's difficult, and sales is difficult. Everything becomes more difficult because it's just a complete lack of understanding. And so, I think in healthcare, almost more than anything else, like the listening part from the technology side is just so, so, so important. And particularly people like yourself that have been clinical. If you've been clinical, you understand those people. You understand what they want and need to hear. You understand what a product might need to be. You come at it almost halfway already and you're on that learning journey too of the business side but you know how to communicate it to them it, it can be so important but i want to talk to you about mindstep a bit more man so can you tell me like whereabouts is mindstep right now like what it what exactly are you doing because on your website you're doing loads of stuff right like there's loads of things that the product can do and the yeah. technology can do right now so give that a bit of flavor and a bit of context for us so like what are the things this technology can do now yeah, so I suppose Mindstep, for those that may have not stumbled on the website yet, or you know, if you want to afterwards, download it on the App Store, it can, basically, it has two components. It has a screening part um, or a clinical assessment part, and then it has it delivers a digital therapeutic. And it does this for the currently the five most prevalent neuro and psychiatric conditions in the world. That's anxiety, depression, uh, migraine, early stage dementia, and uh, concussion. And now we're about to, like I said, mentioned in the beginning, we're about to um, 
add brain fog onto that as well, which is quite exciting. And um, maybe classic classic investor, this is like kind of highlighting the uh, discrepancies of the two worlds. This sounds, this to an investor, and I always get pushback, oh, unfocused. Hamza, what are you doing? Why are you doing five different markets? Uh, I don't like this. Sometimes I get that. And actually, if you were like now come back to the medicine side, you would know that actually, and our data shows this, most of these conditions actually overlap more than they exist separately. So anxiety, depression can often, one can trigger the other. Depression is a huge risk factor for dementia. Concussion can, post-concussively can often mask as early stage dementia. They all, migraine um, gets confused with concussion. Uh, the, 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 a really cool piece of data we have, but like it just shows that these all exist more in conjunction in our user groups than they do separately. And that's um, part of the reason why I think uh, some of these digital therapeutics haven't really cracked like brain and mental health yet because they're very like in startup land, the ideal solution when you get taught by the white combinators and stuff is like point solution, be really focused, like tackle one problem and do that really well. But actually sometimes in clinical medicine, it's, it's a huge iceberg. Like on the surface, yeah, they might be anxious and you could be like, oh yeah, do some meditation. But in reality, you take a bit of a deeper history and stuff. They've, you know, maybe they're drinking 12 pints every night, right? And you, you can do all the CBT you want in the world. That's not going to solve the underlying problem. So I, that was a real reason for us doing multiple conditions. And that's like an example. We talked about how like maybe medicine could use a bit more of a startup mentality. That's the situation where I think startup could use a bit more like this is how the clinical science should, you know, dictate how you build your product. And then part of like trying to come at this problem from a clinical standpoint was that the fact that these conditions get all these therapeutic. So basically in brain and mental health, I think, I think there is a lot of really great therapies out there. I think like meditations come really long way and it has a great amount of efficacy. I think the diet stuff that's been coming out is really important and really useful. And we're learning so much. And like the last 50 years have been like really focused on trying to crack this. Where I think it falls down is that these all of these different therapeutics don't get matched to the right patients. I think there's a lot of like, because of like the complexity of like clinical pictures and stuff and the fact that a lot of these, you know, they just look at the surface. I think that's where the, the failure is. Um, and also the fact that they don't get implemented um, soon enough in the in the presentation journey. And it's often too little, too late. So with our ethos was, all right, we need a really great clinical assessment mechanic in the front. That needs to be a bit broad. That's like, that's a bit anti-startup uh, mentality, but clinically makes sense. So it can filter people to the right therapeutics. And we're not going to just build one. We're going to build 120, which we call a mind step. It's like a short form video-based content that we thought was really evidence-based. And the user journey is that you're going to get screened. It takes about five minutes. Then you're going to get your management, what we call management plan, but in mind step, it's just a care plan. And it's going to consist of a bunch of different care videos. And it's going to be, hopefully, the AI will pick the best possible plan for you. And it's actually machine learning as it goes, right? It's going to keep getting better and better and it can rescreen you and it can train the algorithm that way. Let's let's talk about some of those conditions first. So I'm really interested in two things, the early detection of dementia and some other stuff. That's one. The other one I'm interested in mm-hmm. is this brain fog thing. So let's start with brain fog. Now, I mm-hmm. think you're at a really interesting you're at a really interesting point if you look at an individual's care journey because you're going to come in, MindStep's going to come in at the point of reporting symptoms. And you'll know this, at scale, that's incredibly valuable because of trends and all the rest of it. And obviously a trend that you've seen is brain fog keeps coming up. Now, I'm interested in where this goes from here. You said that you're mapping it to other symptoms. You mentioned that you submitted it to a conference. My question is like, is this something that's going to be new on the DSM stuff? Is this going to be a th- is this going to be a thing? Is it going to be just a symptom? Is it going to be like how how are you seeing brain fog? It was being COVID as well, by the way, and like I suffered from it. I mean, I 
I'm one of those people that mm. was reticent to say I suffered from it because I didn't know if it was a real thing and I didn't know whether like it was a collection of other stuff going on or it probably I, I didn't really know how to quantify it um, in my own mind let alone telling anybody mm. else or even telling colleagues that I've forgotten to set up invoicing for the last six months because I had brain fog a true story tell me about brain fog like where is this now so it's it's always been there that's what our initial right. um stances and what a lot of like the early science says it can present obviously covid kind of popularized it but it exists and through our data it shows like fibromyalgia patients uh women going through the menopause um chemotherapy it's always actually been a a, a condition condition and then unfortunately you know through certain barriers in medicine not really come to the forefront as it should have mm -hmm. however in our data we are constantly doing analysis to you know try provide the best possible care for our users and we were seeing this signal of like kind of cognitive impairment that was um transient so like not not permanently but like kind of like intermittent not going down either uh, in a younger group where you would not expect like a dementia or something along those lines. And we were like, we threw out some words and we we're like, okay, let's see what people are trying to call this and stuff. And brain fog was like coming up as the strongest mm. signal. That's what they were referring to as we, and, you know, I spoke to a bunch of GPs and they were like, yeah, we hear this all the time. No idea what it is. Can't, you know, we just kind of try like let match it to something else. And they'll be like, oh, it's a migraine. Oh, it's like you're symptom of your yeah. concussion it's just a but in our in reality we were able to map it to our like cognitive tests which look at you know frontal lobe activity which look at memory recall which wow. look at um executive function we, we were mapping it to um certain like phq9 packs and looking at nice. to see if it like shows elements of depression we were like does it follow more of a migraine picture where it's like intermittent and has certain triggers or is it more like a concussion where there's like a you know an insult to the brain and then it's kind of like a wave and then it peters yeah. out so we did loads of loads of what we call like you know in machine learning unsupervised learning so you don't put any biases on the data you let it sort of cluster itself but yeah then we picked it up and kind of drilled it down i mean like there's some top top neurologies neurologists from like queen square and imperial who have all been working really hard on this and the, yeah the aim would be to like submit it to nice so mm. we can you know actually empower gps and like other medics to better define and then once you know you have a bit of a label on something and it first is reassuring to the patient that they're not like it's all in their own head and secondly we can start to develop like therapy around that yes that's amazing and that gives me a really good understanding of what you actually do as well that's a, that gives me a really good understanding of how mindset works and the value behind it so i imagine then the early detection of dementia and other things is a similar thing in terms of your looking at what's coming through and drawing um conclusions or finding correlations using machine learning is that fair yeah i mean so for the dementia stuff we um did a clinical trial like a multi-centered one across the country mm. um where we picked we built some tests like some cognitive tests like um and this was like a lot of trial and error i think we had initially like a huge battery of like 10 different mm. ones and we were trying them out trying them out. i was whilst i was on the ward i would be with my iphone and a really crap build of mind step and i'd be like hi excuse me instead of taking history from you which i know you've done 30 times to other medical students would you mind just using my app and i that was my like product research and like the consultants would be like oh my god this student is so keen um but really i, I was i was um trying to you know do 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 make the most out of my medical placements which is mm -hmm. sometimes tough and we eventually got it down to a couple cognitive tests and then we um you know did a trial where we showed it to uh, i think it was over 100 around 100 um patients suffering from mci so mild cognitive impairment early stage dementia and they were diagnosed by the usual battery of tests that we were doing clinic like a neuropsychiatrist etc and then they would do our app and then the test was to see can our app 
you know, match the gold standard labels that were coming out of the clinical trial. Uh, and I was really pleased to say, I can't remember the sensitivity off the top of my head, but maybe you can link it, the paper or something. Mm. I think it was about overnight. It was well over 90%, Oof. which was really, really cool um, because a lot of people, unfortunately, especially the early stage of dementia, gets completely missed, uh, unfortunately, in primary care because it's hard to diagnose mm. and it's um, hard to come forward sometimes with those symptoms as well. Um, so it was a real, real breakthrough. And it like the, the really cool thing about this which I didn't really appreciate at the time. And we were just focused on sensitivity, mm. sensitivity, like how accurate can we get this? Um, which was the right thing to do in a sense. But the huge advantage is that, you know, granddad and granddad can do this from at home in the comfort of their mm. room. And it takes about four minutes. Whereas I don't know, putting someone through like ADAS cogs, you need a, you need an NHS worker there. You need about two, three hours of paperwork. You're going to get, maybe you might get lost to follow up, etc. Confusing. That was the convenience part of the process was something I didn't really appreciate until now, later, now that we have real users using it. So you talked there about some benefits, some sort of efficiency savings when you look at this at a systems level. So how how do you interface with the healthcare system? Is it because you mentioned people can download it now? How do, I mean, if they're normal, I imagine they just use it at home. It's normal. It's told it's normal or similar. And yeah, what if, what if not, like how much is this a medical device? Talk to me about that stuff. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, so it's medical device, um, it's registered with the NHRA, um, which is really important to do, but we're very careful with what the scope of MindStep is. Is it a replacement for your GP or neurologist? Absolutely not. Is it something if you are feeling like you may have some symptoms and you would like to maybe um, clinically assess yourself in order to maybe go to a uh, go follow up with your GP or is it you maybe you're worried about a loved one and you would like to maybe just do something initial? Essentially, it's a screening. It's, it, I think that is the best word because like diagnosis implies like it's very definitive. So it's um, very much like a screening tool. It's meant to be cost effective. And like, like any, you're taught in medicine, you know, signpost effectively, um, let the patient safety net them. So we do all of that in the app. And um, you also, we are very clear like what it is indicated for and what it is indicated for and what are the shortcomings of the test. And as long as you're transparent across those three things, um, MHRA is thumbs up. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Um, it sounds really cool, man. And I mean, I know it is. Um, I, I want to talk to you about the funding rounds. You mentioned three funding rounds that you've done. So congrats, first of all, that's certainly not easy. I know you've got Octopus on the board and things like that. Tell me about the the, the journey there. Was the, was the idea that you obviously wanted to build the tech quickly, therefore you wanted funding in to pay for a dev team? Like, is that, was that initial thinking like the round subsequent, like, why did you do them? What's the goal here? Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. So, I mean, our first piece of funding came from an imperial venture capital competition. I'm not sure they still run it, but it was called VCC at the time. Mm. And we got quite far along in it. And I think we got like uh, a couple grand, which at the time was like, I was like oh my God. Millionaire. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I'm loaded. Um, it was really useful. And I still, to this day, I was like, wow, you, this weird thing, you become so capital efficient when you have nothing oh, so and true. like so uh, driven. Um, and that's, and that's what it felt like. I was like, wow, I've been re really given an opportunity here, uh, to make something out of it. Like, mm -hmm. why don't I try to take this as far? I'm sure you hear this all the time. Like try to take it as far as you can. So got that, got lots of traction. I was seeing the product market fit. Uh, Jean was seeing the product market fit. He was like, Hams, we should do a funding round. And it was, um, kind of like an angel round. Mm -hmm. It was like with some really cool, um, people in Jean's network. Um, and we closed that. I was thinking it was like 300K at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, 300K, what am I going to do? Now looking back, that was basically like test. It was like, okay, like Hamza, he's a medical student. Is he just going to run off with the cash? Can we like, mm -hmm. <laughs> does he know what he's doing? And that was just a real test. And I still think like 
me and my co-founder Aaron, like one of our best performances, like as a team was when we had that 300K. Like we did so much with it. We like, and that was like learning how to manage capital efficiently. That was like spending every penny with like loads of thought behind it. Um, learning how to use like your stock, uh, your stock option pool to like subsidize costs for employees, like all sorts of things were, we just made a lot of right decisions in a row. Mm. We've had phases where we make a lot of wrong decisions in a row, but that was like a really critical point. And then we did, uh, like that, then, yeah, then Octopus came in and they were absolutely terrific. They, um, I had like a little bit of medical, medical school left. They were like, yeah, Hams, go ahead finish your medical degree we actually think as a founder you'll be more valuable if you mm. have if you've got that doctor title and i i made it really clear i was like the reason this product so the product was like phenomenal at the time it was like head and shoulders above uh, I, I hope it still is but definitely at the time it was like um so easy to use like elderly patients were using it um 18 year olds were using it it was like really standard and they were like you have no product background. Like how, have, how yeah. have you and the engineering team pulled this off? And I was like, it is because I'm in clinic all day, yeah. sat with patients, listening to their user needs, what we call user needs, patient problems, same thing. Mm. I was like hearing all of this. And I was like, that is why, like, I'm not, I've not, not got a product background. I have no idea what really UI UX still stands for, to be honest, <laughs> but I can just, I'm hearing all of these things and I'm hearing like, you know, I can see that the elderly, you know, shake with their finger and I can on the screen and I'm like, okay, buttons need to be big. That makes sense in my head. So it was all of those like things that I'm really grateful Octopus value because you sometimes hear, like there's always this debate, you know, like should founders be full time? Like that mm. is like almost like if you're not full time, you're almost, you almost can't raise. Yep. And Sometimes, you know, you see it on Dragon's Den a bit. They'll be like, oh, I think you should leave your job to do this. And I think, A, that's a bit brutal. Mm. Like, it's very easy to say as a Dragon, yeah, go, you know, you might have, they've got like loads of money. You might have to be working two jobs to support yourself and your family. I really don't like that mentality. But I also think there's a, there's a huge advantage to being in two, so not that I was doing two jobs, like one was education, one was like being a founder. But there is like a, if they're well aligned, I think there's a huge, huge like synergy that can happen that sometimes gets lost on some investors. Yeah. And you know what, mate? Like I, I've been part of those conversations as well. And like you're right. It's it's often a, another binary thing for investors, you know. If if you're not gonna leave that, then you can't do this, you're not committed, all of these things. Conclusions are drawn from the decision for which they might not know all the information. And what I want to come back to actually, what this reminds me of is what we talked about with that feedback conversation. You're someone who wants context to be part of any conversation seemingly. You're someone who in the product, you want as much context as possible, which is why you're going to sit in clinic and ask every single patient about every single thing so that you have full context. Mm -hmm. It seems like your framework is about give me the most amount of information and data in order to make the best decision. That seems to be a, a common thread here um, running through this because I think that context is incredibly important because I live in the grey too. I've talked about this a lot. Like I, I feel comfortable with two things can be true at the same time and I feel comfortable with the world doesn't need it's either this or it's this it can be both I just need the amount of information to prove it I need to prove that I can find a way and make both of things true if you just give me all the information and so I really relate to you on that and I really relate to you as well that so much of business can be common sense now that can be quite an inflammatory statement um I think people can you know, take that badly or whatever, because of course you can be experts in, in certain things. But to your point about not really understanding what UI UX is or what it stands for, but actually you're more than willing to simply uh, do the work and figure out, well, what does this practically need to look like and be like in order for the patient to experience it well? Well, isn't that user experience, you know? Um so it seems to me that yeah. you, you definitely want context for everything. And, and that's a wonderful framework for running a business because 
so much of it is in the gray. And of course we need to go quickly. And as leaders and as a CEO, I'm sure that you need to make decisions where you have to act on not as much information as you like, of course, but where you can get it. I think context is so important. And I think you've, uh, you've consistently proved that in this conversation. I don't know if any of that is relatable. Thank you. But, yeah, really appreciate it. I don't, uh, yeah, I just think it's important to, um, it would, I, I think we're a data and AI company mm. fundamentally. And it'd be a bit, uh, hypocritical if we weren't utilizing all of the data inputs and, everything we could like what that makes no sense like you've got to diversify your data label it well input it all in and see what comes out like that's fundamentals of ai i don't really get more more than that to be honest but <laughs> it feels like you should practice what you preach i agree mate i agree um listen dude i've really enjoyed this i've uh, i feel like i've learned a lot from you i, I, I really appreciate if i'm going to take anything away i'm going to take that what, what I'm going to take what you said about feedback away. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell people that I'm going to, I'm going to recount this story quite a lot because I, I do get asked when people come to me and, and they're bruised by their feedback, but people might want to ask them a bit more about what makes that person say that exact thing. I mean, like, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to develop like thick skin. And I've definitely gone away and cried in a corner hmm. and come back. But the important thing is like to come back and just like breathe, have your, have your cry, like that's important. <laughs> but then like wipe, wipe the tears away and like, you know, like in Anoski, go to that next station, like, and try again, like think, reflect, go back. Beautiful, beautiful. And that is wonderful full circle, mate. So thank you for that. Do my job for me. Just just like an Oski. Um, yeah, there's no point yeah. letting that one bad station ruin the next 10. Um, indeed learn from it and yeah. move on. Absolutely. Here, here, uh, mate, my mind step. So if people want to, you said people can download it. So, um, I imagine if, if you're worried about something yourself, if you're worried about a, a, a loved one, like, yeah, where can people, where can people find it? Uh, and how do they learn more about it? Yeah. So, um, it's currently just on the app store Android coming soon, um, with this new funding, uh, which has been like in quite high demand, which is which is nice, but like not, well, not more technically challenging for the engineers, but um, it's going to be really, really cool. And we're really excited to deliver it. Um, we have like an Android waitlist. You can sign up to be like an early beta tester, but if not, just try and nick your mate's iPhone and have a play with it at least. Excellent. And if people want to learn more about you or the company, um, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah. I mean, you can go to our website, let's mindstep com and there's an email at the bottom info at letsmindstep.com and we we um plugged straight into a slack channel so we are very vigilantly watching and always keen to hear feedback hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content